Hello there, I'm Rob Manifold and you're listening to Everything Racing Podcast. So, not going to mess around too much with the intro for this one. It's part two of the F1 Legacies Michael Schumacher series that I recorded with Mike from F1 Fanatics. Part one came out last week and uh, yeah, this is part two covering the years 2000 through to 2012 of Michael's legendary Formula One career. I wanted to start off by doing something that I haven't done before. Uh, I am going to play a promo for a gentleman called Ben. He has has a business called Melaby Design. Uh, he's a graphic designer, does like websites and logos, and he's on all the Everything Racing podcast logos over the years. He's got a little promo for you, so I'm going to play that before we get into the conversation with Mike. So sit back, relax, and enjoy F1 Legacies Michael Schumacher Part 2. Thank you, Rob, for the introduction. As Rob said, my name is Ben. My business is called Melaby Design, and I'm a WordPress website designer. If you need a modern website to generate more sales for your business, then look no further. Go to melabydesign.co.uk to book a slot in my calendar for a 15-minute discovery session to see how I can help you boost your business with a new website. Hi, guys. I'm Mike, and this is F1 Fanatics. Welcome back, and last week we started part one of the F1 Legacies looking at Michael Schumacher, the great seven-time world champion. We looked at his career starting back in 1991 with that qualifying in Belgium, which obviously would become a popular hunting ground for him, and then building all the way up to the 1999 season, where it kind of ended with what could have been. But we are back here today with Rob to kind of get straight back into it. But here is Michael Schumacher's legacy. So, Rob, uh, welcome back. Um, we, we we split. We're, we're part two. We've had we've had a nice little break to kind of go away and uh, relish after our very good chat last week. Out. How are you? Yep, very good. Thank you, mate. Thanks for having me back on. Yeah, very excited to talk about the golden eras of Michael's career. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So we um, we we finished off with that kind of we, we argued, I think, last week that you could argue between ninety five and ninety nine was maybe prime Schumacher years in terms of the performance he got out of the car. But in two thousand, well, well, we'll get into that. But it was the start of what, for a lot of people, I think, defines Schumacher. That you now, whenever you say Ferrari you think Michael Schumacher and so yeah 2000 and I mentioned it it was the start of the trilogy in 1998 uh, between himself and Mika and 2000 for me probably the best year of the rivalry I mean I I, I think I said it last time I, I love 1998 I just love that season I love the battle I think if you're talking about the two you know, Hakkinen and Schumacher's on-track antics against each other, if you will, then, yeah, I would agree that it's the defining season of their rivalry um, in terms of them going one-on-one on track. It, it's a great, great season for that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Obviously, it went down to the last race in 1998, and um, Schumacher would, well, he, he would, after... <sighs> It was the middle part of the season, I think, didn't he? He suffered three consecutive uh, non-finishes and Hakkinen came back into it and then won a further two on top of that uh, before Schumacher regained control. But um, 
I think one of the highlight moments of this uh, partnership during this was the the Belgian Grand Prix and an instant that I'm pretty sure that Hakkinen is still not happy about to date where it was what, what should we call it hard racing I think uh, Michael yeah. would define it as yeah I think that's the politest way to put it um <laughs> Michael slammed the door shut so hard on Hakkinen at 200 miles an hour um I can understand why Mika was upset um so I mean what whilst obviously I'd always want Michael to win a race yeah what, what Mika was able to do a few laps later more than sort of like was uh I guess karma for Michael's probably very much on the line, probably maybe slightly tiptoeing over the line defence. I mean, it isn't so much the fact that he closed the door. It was the way he did it. It was so aggressive, <laughs> so aggressive. Um, but yeah, what a battle that is. Yeah, it's Spa. It's great. It, it, it was such a brilliant battle and it was just the wheel-to-wheel racing. And uh, I think we'll probably say Hakkinen was schumacher's greatest rival in his career he he was the um uh, hacking was his pros to his center if if we were to make some sort of comparison like that um mm. you know i i think that was the fiercest rivalry obviously you know not being within the same team meant that they probably weren't at each other the same but i could imagine if they were in the same team it, it certainly probably wouldn't have been as amicable as it was come the end of it but um i yeah, that 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 spa battle was so brutal between. I I would always describe Hakkinen as the more honest eraser out of the the two, and Schumacher was one. Well, we already discussed last week that you know he was very much prepared to push that boundary to the absolute max, sometimes crossing it to uh, secure victories. Yeah, I mean. I would. I, when you make the point that Mecca was the more honest racer, I would agree with that. I think that's a fair um, way to look at it. Um, that doesn't always mean the better driver, as evident. Uh, the ones who are the most ruthless, both on and off the track, happen. You know, most of the time end up being the most successful, um, and that's obviously clear as to what happened between. You know, how their two careers panned out. But I mean, you, you're dead right in that Michael would tiptoe the line more often than not Hakkinen was more kind of almost like like a more all-rounded Damon Hill in that he kind of went about his business in a much more gentlemanly way but yeah it's an awesome battle at Spa yeah I mean go I'm not sure if the whole race is available on F1 TV but if you listening to this haven't seen that just that battle it goes on for ages and ages and it all leads up to this epic overtake on the with three laps to go awesome it it is a brilliant battle and it's one of the kind of highlights i think of the rivalry if you uh do a clip of that hacken and schumacher rivalry it certainly is between um uh yeah it it certainly is one of the clips that often gets used in that battle and uh Mm. yeah the full race actually is on f1 tv because oh is it we we will be uh doing a classic race review of it in a couple of weeks time so um good stuff that actually might be the one that comes out uh maybe the sunday before this so yeah it might have actually been yesterday that we did that oh, classic race well, review so if you uh, haven't if you haven't gone and checked out the classic review then then do that and obviously go and check the race out um it's it's a great race yeah spa always throws up especially at this time for exciting interesting races and just this was two 
titans of their time just going at it hammer and tongs for the whole race and yeah building up to this yeah like i said a minute ago just amazing finish between the two absolutely and schumacher was already on the stage of developing records in 2000 well obviously we we in hindsight that we now know that that was the start of the journey that would mean that he would break pretty much every record going within the sport but it's the italian grand prix so that was obviously a great on-track battle but the italian grand prix in the press conference afterwards where he you know he equaled uh Ayrton senna's number of wins and 41 and uh what did you make of the emotion that he just kind of showed and broke down in that press conference at the time, I was only a kid. I, I kind of thought, why is he crying? Because I didn't really truly <laughs> understand the emotional gravitas of the whole thing. Um, over the last 20 years, I've, I've gone and really kind of thought about it. It's something that I've thought about, you know, quite, quite you know, a few times over the years. And Michael, it, we don't know um, how Michael handled Imola 94. Um, this is just purely my interpretation of it. Please don't think I know anything about what Mike was going through Michael Schumacher's head about what was happening. But he was the one that was chasing Ayrton Senna and, you know, racing him hard. And Senna then went off and had his accident and, and tragically passed away. And Michael took over that mantle. I almost feel like there was almost a slight guilt in the fact that he was the one that was pushing Senna to, you know, potentially make a mistake that ended up taking his life. So to Michael to reach that sort of level in terms of race wins, probably thinking he wouldn't make that sort of achievement. True, you know, possibly. You never know, you know, what happens in Formula One. You might get a great car year after year or you might get a poor car and never reach the the heights you maybe should have. Um so Michael probably realising in that moment the emotion of the day, getting back into the championship hunt, winning up Monza, um, then just to have the, the guy doing the questions in the press conference say, you know, you've matched Senna's record. Does it mean a lot to you? And he's probably gone, actually, you know what? I've been building this up for six years and this means more than he could probably explain. And then he didn't have to explain his crying did said way more than him saying yeah no it means a lot you know all this that and the other and i think it's excuse me i think it's an important moment in schumacher's career not in the same way of winning races and championships but michael still had this reputation for almost being robotic not in terms of the way he spoke and the way he acted but he was just so sort of mechanical in the way he went about his business he was so good behind the wheel of an f1 car he he was very almost devoid of emotion except euphoria when he won so to see such a vulnerable michael schumacher in this moment crying in front of the world showed that hey this guy whether you like him or not is a human being and you know you know he was more than you know able as like all of us to to show his emotions in such a way yeah i i think for me with michael Obviously, I have the benefit of, like you, a, a child of when he was actually dominating the sport and his main time within the sport, so not really having that full understanding. So only really looking back in hindsight. And he always came across just in what I've seen as... He always had it as quite an emotional person. And 
it, more so than could... I think he was willing to show, especially yeah. in the years, few years prior. I think he maybe took a turning point after he broke his leg. But yeah, he was always an emotional guy. I'd agree with that. Yeah, and the podium celebrations we spoke about before, I mean, even more, they become exuberant in this Ferrari time. And, you know, it was... Yeah, I think it it's incredibly moving, I think, to see mm. someone open themselves bare to the public, that they, they can control it. And actually, you know, that showed the respect between uh, Mika and Ralph at that time because I, I believe the way that they both responded mm. to it of just going, we, we've got to stop this press conference, he he needs a moment we we can't just keep filming a guy breaking down on television that's no good for anyone and yeah he clearly needs a moment mm. and yeah you know as much as they may be fierce on track you know there there is you know that respect between them and i i imagine mika was well because of how he battled and how he'd beaten him um, was probably immensely proud for Michael as well, achieving the record. Well, that equaling that record that Senna set. Yeah, possibly. Um, in terms of being proud that Michael had done it, I suspect Mick would rather it was him. Obviously, um, but, uh, naturally, well, saying, always but... <laughs> they would say that. Yeah, but you, you know, you know what I mean. I, I, I've always got that impression. Sorry, uh, yeah, I, I've always got that impression with Mika though that. He, he probably saw the bigger picture more. He, he always came across as quite mm. an intelligent man to me. And yeah. Th- that bigger picture would oh, have no, I, seen it too. I totally agree. Yeah. No, I totally agree. Um, and you're right that Mike, they off track. You never, there's really reasons why they always, their rivalry was always so well received and it's still what, 20 years later, it's still so like revered by fans like me and you. Um, mm. Because they did have this respect. I suspect they actually got along with each other quite well. They're probably not going around each other's houses for dinner and all the rest of it. But at the racetrack, they probably are very, very friendly with each other and get along really well. Um, So, yeah, to see, you know, I suspect Mika was probably, he was at least happy for Michael that he was able to do it. Um, and yeah, you're right with the way that Ralph and Mika handled the situation in the press conference with the with the guy literally insisting on asking questions still. He's the guy. I feel bad for the guy doing the questions. He's thinking, "Oh god, I've still got a press conference to try and run here." But there's it's he's clearly not getting the message of this isn't the time, lad. You need to stop asking <laughs> questions. No one wants to do this at the moment. Um and yeah, I think Ralph, I think especially credit goes to Ralph. I mean, he basically takes over the whole thing. Um he he just kind of ends up taking over proceedings as Mick is there consoling Michael. Um, but yeah, it's it's certainly one of the more, um, I guess, emotional moments of Schumacher's career. I think he has more emotional moments, and we'll get to them in a moment. But yeah, it's certainly noteworthy. Yeah, and that season will we'll round off 2000. Obviously, he seals that first title for Ferrari, the, the first driver's title since 1979 uh, 79 when yeah. Jody won it and you know he won it at the penultimate race and well one it showed obviously he, he got ahead of Mika in the um, second pit stop didn't he mm-hmm. 
and but I, I think this was the perfect way because they would never have a title fight after this it was the perfect way for Schumacher to do it for me he, he's won he's achieved his work since 1996 for this title he's grinded it you know he against he's missed out to Hill he's missed out to Villeneuve he's missed out to Mika twice you know 1999 was kind of more out of his control but 2000 it had all come together the Ferrari his dream at Ferrari was coming together and him and Mika I believe finished over a minute ahead of third place in that race and it, it, it almost seemed the perfect end to go they were so far above anyone in that period that you know that the rivalry would end with such dominance with Schumacher finally coming out on top yeah I mean you're right they were the two class of the field during their their time uh at the top you know of their respect you know of that particular era I mean Japan is amazing I mean Michael gets pole Hakkinen jumps him off the line immediately and you think oh dear I remember waking up for this race as a kid um in just but the fact that Mika wasn't able to pull away, I mean, they were literally just full flat out for the 53 laps of that race. Um, yeah, and I always think my, one of my favourite moments in Formula One ever for me is um, leading up to the second round of stops. It's Hakkinen leading Schumacher. Hakkinen pits first. He's immediately then stuck in some traffic, but Michael just pumps in some seriously fast laps like this he probably knew that this is it this is the moment if i'm gonna win this world championship these next few laps were the most important of his entire career up to this point they would and he put them in um the, the pressure that he was on uh, he would have had from from the ferrari and the fans especially must have been utterly like indescribable 97 came close he threw it away himself 98 it didn't happen 99 he broke his leg this year Everything, all the stars lined up. Michael knew going into it that this has to be it. Because I suspect you go to a title decider. Obviously, we know how the Malaysian Grand Prix went. But go to a title decider. Is Michael Schumacher psychologically going to be able to handle that? Because in the past, he has shown in that situation with Damon Hill and with Jack Villeneuve. That, and in 98 as well. That he possibly isn't that psychologically strong if he's in that situation. Michael showed, yeah, no, he, he can be strong enough psychologically to handle the pressure goes in for his stop ferrari put in an awesome pit stop six seconds stop he comes out and i always remember that image of michael coming out of the pits and mick has just come onto the pit straight and um yeah um seven year old me seven no eight eight or nine year old me was literally just bouncing off the walls but there was still like 15 laps to go so it was far from over it starts to rain and michael backs off a lot hackerton's like going for it one last shot um, and I always remember the iconic commentary call from Murray Walker as Michael enters that final chicane onto the pit straight. He goes, a brilliant race from Michael Schumacher. He comes round and oh, that moment where he crosses the line and starts slamming his fist on the steering wheel. That is five years of built up frustration, emotion and the pressure of being in that situation, just releasing all at once. It's glorious. It's one of, if not the best moment of Michael's career. And in Ferrari's history, to be honest, they'd waited over two decades for this. I can't even imagine. Like, I wish I was my age now 
experiencing that I, I couldn't even imagine like waiting that long for a world championship i mean i'm a ferrari fan so the chances are probably are still gonna have to wait that <laughs> long for it uh in real life <laughs> come on charles you can i imagine win if the stuff um, gets around to it i imagine it might be a similar feeling to what kind of uh, those type of fans mm-hmm. might feel in the end. I don't, yeah, yeah. I'm sensing there. You know, yeah. he's, he's um, but it's just yeah. Oh, but Japan is just amazing. It's a like, it's a wonderful race. What Michael Michael always said it was his best race. Um, oh, it's just it's it's something that gives me goosebumps now. Um, even 20 years later, I still get goosebumps like going back and watching the footage like and. Michael on the podium celebrating like you you'll never see Michael more you've genuinely beside himself with joy than that and he always was very happy when he won a race so yeah an iconic moment I think it's so even though the records were to come it's probably fair to say that this is the one that meant the most the the mm-hmm. first win there, he, he almost wasn't expected to do the first one at Benetton, but he wanted the Ferrari one. I think everyone wants to be a world champion, but this is the one he really wanted. And it, it was funny, I think last episode you said, you know, uh, in talking about the 97 incident, that he is sometimes a guy who doesn't perform under pressure. And for me, this could almost be seen as a turning point because he would yeah. deal with the pressure sealing this one and getting it over the line putting in those laps uh, so that he would get ahead of Hakkinen on those second round of pit stops I, I think this was a defining moment that would lead to the dominance that would come for the obviously next four years completely agree yeah I mean that's why I was getting at a bit earlier it's like yeah he he, this was a moment where he showed actually you know what he can get it done when it truly mattered and maybe there was some slight question marks over whether he could he could handle the pressure um with his actions on track and everything like that over the years prior uh when the push came to shove uh japan is just fantastic i mean yeah it is the defining moment of Michael's career. It changed his. It changed his life. It changed Ferrari forever. Because look at what was to come. It started the snowball effect of just the one of the greatest run of dominance in motorsports history. Uh, it's just, yeah, it's very important to F1's history. Is Michael winning this race? Absolutely. And like we said, it will, it will kind of set up. And um, it's an interesting one how to tackle these next four years because i would argue that three out of the um four were fairly convincing uh in their way that they would won in mm-hmm. 2001 and 2002 certainly are but there there are certainly i think some moments uh to mention within that in, in terms of being quite a family mm-hmm. man schumacher the um uh one two in the canadian grand prix uh, that, yeah. I think that was a very special moment for him. I've, it, yeah, I mean, in a way, it was also it was quite nice that Ralph won that race. Um, I, I don't know if Michael had won it, it would have been just another Michael Schumacher victory. But the fact that Ralph battled his brother so hard and on the day was just genuinely better than him 
in a straight fight. Yeah, it showed that, you know what, Ralph is actually a hell of a lot better than just being Michael's younger brother in the shadow. Uh, that Ralph actually had a true ability in a Formula One car. And I actually think he was slightly underrated um, across his, the length of his career, to be honest, Ralph Schumacher. He was good. He was a good driver. Just obviously very much in Michael's shadow. Canada's cool. Um, and then I'm thinking other races from 2001. Uh, Malaysia, the beginning of the season. Um where he is leading and both he and Barrichello go off simultaneously as it starts to absolutely bucket down. Then the two Ferraris are stuck in the pits for about at least a minute, minute and a half, whilst they're trying to sort it out, having an absolute mare. And both, like, Michael's, like, way down the order. I think he's, like, 11th or 12th. He's around that region. But he comes, fights through the field and, and ends up very quickly, really, taking control of the race and wins it. And considering what had happened and where he was after just five laps, it's, you know, it's a great, amazing comeback. And it does kind of go um, unmentioned when you look at great Schumacher comebacks. But then again, that was just another example of Michael being truly superior to everybody in the wet. Yeah, and I, I think it shows the confidence that he had in those changeable conditions and also the confidence that he now had at Ferrari. He knew he had the car. And I think any great driver uh, you put across the history of uh, Formula One, once the greats knew they had the car, the performances came because there was almost that untouchable feeling from it, I would suppose. And, you know, that they, they believed that they could do the impossible. Yeah, no, you're right. Um, people always will argue or, you know, would this person have done this if they didn't have a better car? And I figured, well, end of the day, the best drivers end up in the best car. And Michael had worked. He'd gone from the best car at the time in 95 to Ferrari, which wasn't, probably the third best, spent five years building up to a position where actually, you know what, this is the best team. He had built that team around him. Ferrari had got their mojo back truly and, and they were now the dominant force in terms of going about their, you know, making their cars and the reliability of their cars around this time was just absolutely incredible, really. Um, it all just lined up. And Michael, yeah, you're right, would have had such confidence, um, both in himself and in the team and in the car that he had been provided. And yeah, he, he in the next few years, he would go on to perform like genuine magic in it and be so yeah. good. And I suppose the only last point on 2001 before we move to 2002 is um, breaking Alan Prost's most career wins um, at the Belgian Grand Prix. And it, it almost feels fitting with Schumacher that it was at Belgium that that happened. I mean, there's still plenty of more things coming up in Michael's career where it was at Spa. It always happened to be at Spa. Um, but yeah, no, it did seem fitting. Um, ten years after his debut in 91, he goes on, takes his 52nd victory, becomes the most successful driver in terms of race wins ever. I mean, that was a record, which even just like, you know, three or four years earlier, you ask, will someone beat Pross record in the next, in the next 10 years? You're thinking maybe, but but no. I mean, we're now at this point where is, is Lewis Hamilton going to beat Michael's record? probably and that blows my mind quite frankly that we're actually going to be in this position where that is a genuine conversation we're going to have um or we're having at the moment it's it's a genuine possibility um 
yeah, Belgium is a is a massive, you know, place for Michael in terms of his legacy. And yeah, getting that fifty second win done uh, at Spa in you know in a dominant way is always in in around this time. Um, and obviously, he won the championship back in Hungary. I mean the year after he'd win the championship even sooner into the season but to have the championship wrapped up by like midsummer just showed just how good he was and how good his team and the car were but it would get even more dominant yeah i mean 2002 uh for me you could probably if you sum it up in one word would be records (laughs) and that would be you know that Mm. went on to win equaling fangio's record Ferrari won 15 out of the 17 races. Um, I believe he broke uh, his own record that he shared with Mansell with uh, nine race wins in a season. Mm -hmm. Um, I believe it was the consecutive wins at the start of the season where he got six um, as well, I believe. And look, it... (laughs) He, scored, he, he, he finished every race at, on the podium for an entire season, which is just mind blowing. Think about that; as it doesn't happen even nowadays. Like to finish, that's how bulletproof he was, and how bulletproof his car was. Two thousand two is not his best ever season. I still think maybe it is because he got it wrapped up so quickly. But it's certainly at least tied as his best ever season. It's just an almost hilarious amount of dominance that he displayed and Ferrari displayed that year. It's a season that means a lot to me too. I I met Michael um, very briefly um, in 2002. So it's always a season and the British Grand Prix in particular, which uh, I hold very dear to me because, yeah, I I actually got to meet Michael. That's amazing. And um, I I, I presume just kind of briefly to go, hi, Michael, big fan, autograph. Great. Or was it a little bit more than that? No, it was... I was 11 years of it. I was 11 years of age um, and we had literally spent uh, this is back in the days when you went, went to Silverstone. You could literally like stand outside mm. the paddock entrance, literally right up into to the gates of the paddock. And there was no one battered an eye, really. Um, so we did that for the whole weekend. And I met everybody, literally everybody. I mean, right down to like all the bat markers in Formula One. Like I met Jean Todd. I met Eddie Jordan, David Coulthard, Kimi Raikkonen, uh, Barrichello. Like, I basically met everybody of note, but I hadn't met Michael. And on the morning of the race, we, we were waiting. Me and my dad were waiting outside the paddock. Um, autograph book and the old disposable cameras. Remember them? <laughs> Amazing. Um, back, I know, right? The what? What? The ones where you have to none of this smartphone taking on your phone business. This but you had to wind these and you, things and up. You, and then you, <laughs> like, you, know guess, I mean? you were just like crazy. I really hope this is good because I've got no idea. Yeah. So so. so <laughs> Yeah, yeah, abs- absolutely. Yeah, you had no, you no retakes. You had, a, and also there was only like twenty pictures per roll or something like it was hilarious. Anyway, we're waiting outside the paddock in the morning, and there he he comes out of the back of a of a back of a I don't know like a I don't know like a car or something, and my dad's like, <laughs> go, go now. I'll be, I'll follow you, and I'm literally, I, sp- me and this big group of people sprint up to him, and um, yeah, just stick, get my autograph. And there's this picture my dad snapped of me literally, 11-year-old boy, meeting his idol. And I'm literally like eyes wide, mouth slightly agape in this moment, knowing that this will probably never happen again. But I'm actually, this is Michael Schumacher right here. And even just from that experience, a really short experience, he had this 
I don't know what how to describe it, like an aura about him. Like everybody else almost felt like a normal person who happened to do a really cool job. Michael Schumacher felt like one of these one of the world's truly special sporting people. I can imagine it must have been the same meeting Michael Jordan mm. in his time. You know, that sort of sporting individual and yeah just being in his presence for just a few seconds especially at this time where he was at the absolute height of his powers was something i've never forgotten i will never forget and i love this picture um, i'll put it up on my like everything racing podcast twitter page so you can see it um but it it is great and it's a memory i hold forever and then to cap it off he went off and he went to win the race um which led i burst into tears with happiness <laughs> it was uh, a very 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 special day yeah the 2002 british grand prix so that's probably why i always hold 2002 very near and dear that, to my heart that is that's an incredible story and uh, it's one of the things i love doing podcasts for because you just hear these amazing stories and i it, it's mm. amazing hearing what he meant to you and you know just just that moment and i i do imagine it's the greats have it i imagine people had it when they met senna i imagine people get it now when they see hamilton mm. you know they when when you become mm. that successful there is an aura about you become you know even drivers had it in the paddocks in like the 70s and stuff when fangio would come into the paddock oh, and, yeah. you know it's it, it's crazy and that is we'll probably talk about this at the end and in terms of i i do think that's something that you know this generation miss and lose from because i have no doubt in my mind that he would have still played a big part in the f1 paddock today but um i probably the mm. only controversy to 2002 i won't put too much of a downer on your 202 because now knowing how much it means <laughs> but we got we have to discuss we have to discuss what you're austria. about to bring up yeah, we have to we, we can't austria not. and the united states grand prix probably go hand in hand for me um because obviously barrichello overtook schumacher yeah. right close when schumacher dominated that race and it, it almost felt like a i'm sorry hmm. an apology there you go. Have this one. Have a free, have a free one. It, like, yeah. it almost feels a little bit like the uh, Bottas had it. I think this year with Hamilton um, after Singapore. I think it was in Sochi that happened. I, I might be getting that wrong. Oh, that was in twenty. As in twenty, it was twenty eighteen. Um, but Bottas took pole, led comfortably, and then that's where the famous uh, Valtteri, it's James. That's where that meme really kicked off. Oh, absolutely, off. yeah. And um, yeah, so that he he was he was told to slow down, let Lewis through, and yeah, I've always I I think if you if someone is in a situation like what Hamilton was and Mercedes were, where they are truly in a battle for the championship and. It's not necess- It's not between your two drivers. It's you've got one driver who is very much in the hunt, and this other driver is playing a supporting role. And even though Ferrari and Vettel were not having a particularly great time of it and losing points hand over fist, really at the time, um, Mercedes were right, I think, to to make the switch um, to maximise the points that they could get. They were, they had world championships to win. It sucks. It sucks. But. If those points ended up being what cost Hamilton the world championship, then you'd turn around and say, well, why didn't they switch him? So Mercedes did the logical thing, albeit not the nicest thing to do. But yeah, sometimes you've got to be cruel uh, in sport like this. But Austria, 
is a totally different kettle of fish because it was really early in the season and there was just it was the way it was done i think which is the thing that makes it a lot worse than russia 2018 the way it was done literally just over the line it was they were taking the mick out of everybody really ferrari were it 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 was the way it was handled was so poorly done it's it's a dis uh, i'll say it. it's a disgrace i've i've always had that a bad is, feeling that about is literally that, the commentary as it, it was... passed a lot and i i re-watched it um mm. you know when yep. i was kind of going through some moments mm-hmm. uh to bring up in the podcast and i i re-watched the passing of that line and yeah it, it's just you know the commentary is going and rubens is slowing up he's slowing up it, it are they teasing you know that michael mm-hmm. will get close but they'll still go across and then it was like no and then <laughs> i hadn't really heard a commentator call something a disgrace since james hunt used it you know not sparingly during his time in the commentary box uh, <laughs> everyone yeah. everyone was a disgrace yes. to james <laughs> among, among other things um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, but this this yep, genuinely was meriting <laughs> of the word like you said disgrace and i look I it wasn't needed in this situation. Team orders they never sit easy with me, but that's because I'm a racing fan. So, and you're a racing fan. We prefer to see drivers battle it out. But these, but these are teams. These 100%. these are teams fighting for the top prize. It ain't gonna sit easy. And sometimes being the honourable gentleman and winning things in the right way it's it's not 1950s formula one anymore and certainly with a team branded in the image of enzo ferrari they are ruthless winners and it it it, it wasn't something unexpected from ferrari but that doesn't make it any easier to stomach i completely agree um I think it's well, even 20 years ago and more so now, you know, it's the way the world's gone. Um, there's just so much money involved. And obviously there was a lot of money involved in the 50s, 60s and 70s, etc. But at this point, there was so much money for winning that Ferrari knew in the long term that they, they wanted to win the world championship, get it wrapped up and secure the money that comes from that, from sponsorships, from from prize money, from from all the rest of it. And they took the decision to, you know, maximise their points where they could, because I think the only real rival to Michael in 2002 was Montoya. And Montoya wasn't having a particularly great day. He, I think he came third, off the top of my head, third or fourth. Um, but uh, it was just, like I said... I would argue, I'm not saying it's excusing it, I would argue if Ferrari had turned around with 15 laps to go and said, right, Rubens, we're in a situation, we want Michael to win the World Championship for the team. Um, this is back in the day where team radios weren't broadcast very often at all on the television feed. It might not have been a, at all back in 2002 off the top of my head. But Ferrari just went about it so wrong i mean the the rumor was always that they threatened barrichello look if you don't do this we'll sack you they just signed he just signed a new deal with ferrari i think or was at least on the verge of a new contract with them um and i you wouldn't be surprised if they turned around to to hit to rubens and said look if you don't do this 
somehow before the end of the race, you're, you're gone, mate. You know, we'll get rid of you. Ferrari were a ruthless team. They still are to an extent. But back at this time, especially with Jean Todd at the helm, not not a particularly nice team at all, really. And uh, yeah, it was just wholeheartedly unnecessary to tell Barrichello to stop, essentially, on the line, almost, to let Michael through. It, it was not, not good. Not but good in fairness, all. it's another iconic image. Uh, yeah, for all the wrong wrong reasons. reasons, (laughs) I covered it on Everything Racing. Um, I covered it on Everything Racing podcast. The story of it and the way uh, the part that when the way the build the story builds up to the the podium where literally everyone is booing like so loud, like it's just you can barely hear the anthems. All you can hear is the, the fans booing them. I mean, it's because of the way it was done. On the line, they'd spent seventy laps building up to this point, and they had had the rightful win- uh, no, the rightful winner robbed from them, literally f- yards from the finish. Not good, but yeah, USA. I always kind of, as well would go to the Indianapolis where they basically staged a finish. I think that's just Ferrari just trying to show off. Look, we are so good that like, we we can literally stage a finish. Fract- they wanted to get. I suspect they wanted to get the record for the closest finish. Um, and I think they at least got second or third. I don't think they quite managed it. But they completely stuffed it up. Barrichello ends up winning. And then there's this scene in the part Ferme after the race where I think they literally looks like Michael and Rupins just draw a line in the sand and just go, yeah, oh, uh, let's just, shall we just move on from this? Like, this this, this is a mess. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Thank- and, and thankfully, that was yeah. really the only tarnish on what was an immense season from Ferrari. And. We'll move on to the last two seasons, and it was one that was defined by probably the closest fight uh, in Michael's Ferrari. Uh, Hackenham might have been the best competitor in 2000, but I I believe it went down to the last race with Kimi. Um, Funny enough, at Japan again. Uh, (laughs) But, yeah, you know... O four was dominant. O three was the title battle, and the last. I I imagined what twenty twenty I was hoping would be, was this season, with Hamilton, Leclerc, Verstappen. Mm. So the inexperienced, yeah. talented, um, mm-hmm. hungry for their first championship guys in the Ferrari mm. Red Bull against Mercedes yeah. um, and Hamilton. That was it with Schumacher by this stage. You know, he had equaled Fangio's record. Already won the previous three years with Ferrari. Absolutely, they're blitzing it at this stage. Montoya had showed promise last year and it had come in fruition. Uh, Raikkonen, I believe it was his first full season in 2002 with McLaren. And 2003 is where he really pushed it. And yeah, it, it was... A lot of intriguing moments between the three of them all year. Yeah, it's certainly... It's kind of like the equivalent of when Villeneuve won the championship in 97. Ferrari had the best car in 2003, but for a combination of other teams who were behind maybe just outperforming themselves to an extent, uh, and uh, you know Villeneuve and Williams perhaps kind of making a bit of a meal of it 
but still getting the job done somehow, some way. Michael, in 2003 and Ferrari were the same. I mean, the 2003 GA wasn't a particularly... It's kind of a very forgettable car um, when they eventually launched it. I mean, this is back in the days where Ferrari would literally do four races into a season and then launch that year's car, which is, <laughs> I think, more of a testament to how good the 2002 car was because um, it still won a race in Imola. Um, but 2003 is an odd season. Um, I just think everyone else got better. And the Michelin tyres, especially um, in hot conditions, were just fantastic. Far superior to the Bridgestones on just a hot day, um, which allowed McLaren and, and Williams to to get close and to and to really, really, truly fight my you know Ferrari and take it to them. Um, there was this issue as well with the Bridgestone tyres uh, that kind of came to a head at Monza. I, off the top of my head, I don't remember. A huge amount about that it was i don't know if it's something to do with tire pressures or, or the you know the, the way the tires were the were manufactured but they were changed for monza and just so it happened michael wins at monza and then wins at usa uh and then goes on to win the world championship so there was a little bit of sort of shenanigans both on and off the track but 2003 is an interesting season um but yeah Again, sort of a bit of a scrappy season altogether from Ferrari and from Michael. But yeah, in the end, he, it still showed the quality of the two, you know, the combination of Ferrari and Michael in that even when things weren't going super smoothly, they still got the job done. I, I think that is very much when a team gets in their dominant period, it, it, it is so hard to be so dominant in a sport and be better than everyone else because year on year you have to re-motivate yourself and no matter how mm -hmm. much you re-motivate yourself it isn't quite the same as being hungry for that first one and now because you've won three previous to this one you're going for a fourth yeah you want that fourth but there are guys Williams they haven't won since 1997 McLaren they haven't won since 1999 you've got one Pabwell Montoya a champion in kind of IndyCar coming across and he really backs himself he wants that world title to kind of prove himself Kimi Raikkonen this young Finn lightning quick he wants to kind of do it you know Mika Hakkinen recommended him to get in that seat a mentor to Kimi I imagine certainly he would have liked to have got one up over Michael during this time and you know it's to still come out on top yes obviously the the kind of redesign of the tires at monza may have helped and played into these things but you, there's always kind of uh it's almost like a game of monopoly uh type of thing yeah. it's you stumble across you go to jail type card but um mm. <laughs> but you know you know what i mean it there's always going to be stumbling blocks in a season. That's that's the fact of because it's Formula One is a human sport. It's man and machinery. So therefore, there will always be mistakes. There will always be kind of redefined moments. There will always be something that doesn't go entirely to plan. But you know, over the course of the season, to still come out on top, it was uh, vastly impressive and certainly one of his most impressive wins uh, in the Ferrari era. Yeah. No, yeah, absolutely right. Um, like, yeah, we both said it that you know the fact that despite the fact that it all didn't kind of go their way, they still managed to get the job done in the end. Just showed the quality of of Ferrari and, and Michael Schumacher. Um, yeah, it's uh, 
it's a great season you know i'm pretty sure all a lot of the races are um are available on f1 tv and yeah i recommend 2003 that's a season people don't talk about that much it's a great season there's some cracking races in that season especially silverstone that's an that's honestly that's one of my favorite races of all time i was there for one it was i went to silverstone many many years on the spin um 2003 is a great season yeah i definitely recommend checking out a full season if if you haven't you know if you listen and haven't or watch and haven't you know checked it out do so great season yeah, it it really is a brilliant one, and, and and for me, it was the start of Kimi starting to hit his peak, and it's probably uh, Montoya's best season in Formula One. Uh, uh, yeah, agreed. It never, it never quite kind of worked out for him. Uh, McLaren, Kimi was always the one who came out the better of uh, the two in there, and we'll move on to two thousand and four. So obviously, you know, he broke the record. He gets that record sixth championship. Absolutely incredible achievement uh, in 2003. 2004 for me, um, again, like 2002, is one word, records. uh, But you'd probably just go, wow, (laughs) Um, is is after being so close the season before, you know, only finishing two points ahead of Raikkonen, uh, just securing that single point in the last race. 2004... um it, it it probably is i i don't know if the records i can't remember if the some of the mercedes seasons between 2014 and 16 were more dominant but it, I, it for I'm me i'm pretty sure mercedes have the most like highest win percentage across the season i think it's like 90 like 94% or 93% of like more than that maybe 96% something like that of like that's how many races percentage wise they won across the full season yeah there's more races to win but yeah this is this was the I think aside from 1988 McLaren which won 15 out of 16 races this is one of the most dominant seasons ever by any team it's just really in many ways it people claimed and you'd be hard-pressed to you know disagree with it in a way it almost damaged the sport how dominant it was people especially at the time where there wasn't a whole lot of coverage of other motorsport categories you can go and get your fix from but formula one in the uk at least was very much the number one motorsport and um it was just people just didn't want to tune in because they knew that michael schumacher and ferrari were going to win and when they didn't win it was through just to put it in perspective, Schumacher won 12 of the first 13 races of this Crazy. season. He got a record 148 points in that season. And that's when uh, he could only score 10 points per win. But that, that says it all. Like that doesn't sound like a lot of points compared to these days, but 10 points a win back at this point. I was 148, did you say? Yeah, 148. Holy moly. <laughs> yep. 34 points ahead of Rubens set a new record of 13 race wins out of a possible 18 beating his previous best of 11 Mm -hmm. and yeah obviously clinching that record seventh world title as well I mean there isn't really much more you can say about 2004 other than just it was the crowning jewel on what had been an era of absolute dominance for Ferrari. Uh, it's just, 
I, I personally don't mind 2004. It's widely regarded as one of the worst seasons of the modern era because it was just literally Schumacher's on pole. He's the whole race wins. But there were some really, truly great races in this time. I mean, France. I mean, I don't know if that's one you had written down to talk about where he, he and Ross Braun just decided to play around with everybody and do a four stop strategy on a whim. And they pulled it off. I mean, that is just taking the mick like that's how how much better they were than everybody yeah we'll pull off a four stop strategy at, at a circuit where you probably really don't need to do it they just kind of did it for fun and to prove a point that actually we are so much better than you all uh yeah 2004 is i mean that's why i was kind of um and arm as to whether 2002 or 2004 is michael's best season i mean you you probably do have to lean towards 2004 it, 13 wins in an 18 race season is just ungodly like it's just amazing it it was just such an incredible yeah he was bang he was at the top everything happened and you know ferrari they looked an unstoppable machine at this stage you know six constructors titles back to back five driver titles back to back since 2000 for michael and then the rule changes happened and 2005 mm. came along <laughs> yes um i've always had this opinion that with new regulation changes it it the worst the team that it kind of hurts the most is the team that's at the top of the time and this was no more evident than in 2005 where the regulations changed to stop ferrari's dominance and what do you know it worked because in comes Renault and McLaren, especially Renault, who go to, you know, well, Renault went from being, what, second, third, fourth best team to number one, num undisputed number one team. And Ferrari in 2005 had one of its worst ever seasons. And the fact that it's that his, Michael's only race win was a race which only had six cars in it um, kind of says it all for that season. It really does. And that that was one of the moments. The other moment Imola. was Imola. Mm -hmm. with Obviously, yeah. he was king at Imola. And <sighs> that kind of Fernando holding him off, uh, I think it was the last 28 laps of the race. And I know that's still a race that he holds kind of dear to his heart that... You know, that, that was something that he was proving himself against Michael for, you know, the young guns of... Um, you know, Fernando and Kimi coming through, it, it was massive for them to kind of be getting on top of uh, Michael. And so, yeah, that that was a really epic kind of battle and end to a race. Michael pushing until ITV Until just... ITV decided to go for a blooming ad break with about three laps to go. Do you remember that? <laughs> yeah. And then oh they got, God, and then, they came back it, and it was you? like starting the last lap. And I, then they um after the race like i remember jim rosenthal literally saying we're really sorry we're going to replay the final five laps for you now i think what's the point like the race is over oh what an it's over mess. now we know what happens <laughs> yeah exactly it's like watching a game of football but you already know the result so what why bother it, it, it's it's never quite the same yeah right i i know what you mean and the only other point i really have in 2005 was you know he showed in suzuka uh, uh you know the last uh it was the last was it the last race or the penultimate race penultimate. i think it was the china was last yeah and uh fernando had wrapped up the title before in brazil 
Kimmy obviously has the standout race of his career. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they'd all kind of started quite near back. Kimmy had started 17th. Fernando had started 16th. Michael, I think, was around 12th. But yeah. for the majority of the race, there was this kind of midfield battle between Michael in a kind of inferior car to Fernando and Kimmy. And there were some great battles. Uh, Fernando had to pull off that uh, overtake at 130R, um, which is incredible. Kimmy, you know, the the big overtake was obviously the Giancarlo Fisichella one on the last lap. But also he passed Schumacher finally at the same point there um, earlier on in the race. So he'd almost lined up that same move. Mm. Um, and I, I just thought it showed Schumacher's guile and skill still. You know, even in an inferior car, he was still making it bloody difficult for these young guns coming through yeah i mean that's one thing i've always thought about michael um we'll, we'll get to his comeback and all that when he was in inferior machinery but i always felt michael was able to outperform bad cars i mean to the f the f2005 is a bad car like it's one of the worst cars ferrari have made in the, in the last 20 years it's a t- really poor car just didn't suit the regulations whatsoever to be fair the regulations were pretty weird at the time um not been able to pit for, like not been able to take you know, new tires was strange but um the um 2005 season i almost feel like it's like a passing of the guard kind of or it's like to to enlighten it to animals it's like here's the king of the pride in michael schumacher and here comes these two young lions to come in and go actually we're gonna take you take over it feel to use a bit of a cliched um way of looking at it it that's kind of what it was but michael in in, in his defense was then still defending himself you know, valiantly in japan as you made the point um still showing that hey you they still got some way to go to truly knock me off me perch um but yeah i think the less said about 2005 the better and then 2006 where probably the only time i would say in michael's career the fairy tale didn't quite happen yes but it was still a hell of a season. <laughs> oh, my, I, Michael was fantastic, especially in the middle part of the season to the end. Um, in the first half of the season, he... I mean, Alonso was just marginally better um, than Michael. I mean, I remember Bahrain, Michael takes pole. It's his first pole for quite a while. Like, you're going back to some point in, like, mid-2004. Japan 2004, I want to say, was the last time he took pole position. Um, oh, no, he took a pole in Hungary in, t- in 2005. I can't... Anyway, something like that. It'd been a while. He took his pole position. He gets beaten by Alonso fair and square in a straight fight. Um, then it's Malaysia, and uh, I think Michael finished, like, fifth or sixth. And then he crashed out all on his own in Australia. And you start wondering... This, I remember the press very much asking the question, is is he now kind of, he's obviously beyond his peak. His peak was like 2004. He's now on that steady decline. He then does to Alonso what Alonso did to him at Imola and, and wins there and then wins at the Nürburgring. Uh, again, in a straight fight, I think, with Alonso. And then we get to Monaco. Yeah. And so... He gets pole in Monaco. He's stripped of that pole. 
and starts so. at the back of the grid um, because ooh, he wow. parks his car. He parks it. It's just <laughs> there's no there's no mistake. There's no lock up. He cheated. and he and he didn't even you know have a parking bay. That's, <laughs> yeah, where's, you know, where's have you have you paid your pay and display, mate? That's that's the real kind of crime here. You know, there, yeah, exactly. there clearly wasn't a space there. And, yeah, you know, exactly. it's, it's that people where you look at the supermarket and it's on a busy day or something and they've just parked behind someone and you're just going, yeah. what are you doing? That was Michael Schumacher at Monaco. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot worse of things you could say about Michael that day. I remember back at a time where I would defend Michael to the hills, but I remember just being able, turning around to my family and my friends and that who say, what was that about? And I'm like, I don't have a defense. He cheated. He cheated. It's so bad. It's so bad. It's embarrassing. It's just, in a way, it's worse. It's 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 at least as bad as the other two major moments in his career. I've covered it on the podcast, and I just don't. Oh, it makes me really sad. I just there was so there was no need. And again, it proved my point that when the going really got tough psychologically, Michael couldn't always handle it. He did certain things he overstepped the line because psychologically he truly couldn't handle the pressure of the moment he's fine for pole at monaco he desperately needs to get pole um though ross braun since said that he actually thinks that ferrari even with second would have won the race because it was an, um, the race car it was set up brilliantly for the race and then obviously michael's comeback in the race would show actually the car was on was an yeah, awesome obviously car making his way back to fifth but yeah, exactly. I I, 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 I think with this is you, you got it. 2000 was that key point that he would then go on and pressure. I think 2005 and those rule changes rocked Michael's confidence in Ferrari. It not after being almost invincible in 2004, 2005 was like, I don't think we're the best anymore. He would obviously probably never openly admit that, but internally within himself, he knows he's been around the sport for, you know, over a decade now. He would know mm. that he'd go, and he'd also go, you know, I'm maybe, like you said, maybe on this kind of decline. I, I mean, the funny story is he probably would have gone on and after the retirement, one, one in 2007, oh, probably 2008. Mm, yeah. Mm. Um, well, who knows? You, yeah, no, you, you don't know these these things. Uh, ifs, buts, and maybes. Um, you you certainly feel we might have capitalised on the drama in two thousand and seven. That's for sure. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. No, I think you're right. But you know, I, I think he knew, and that's why he announced the retirement. Obviously, Italy was because I I, I think he was like. I want to be remembered at really the top. I think I might be able to do it this year, but even if I don't, I'm. It will still be a close title battle. He couldn't. I'm not sure if he felt he could guarantee going out near the top. And I think he's was proud, you know, at, at this stage, obviously, of his career. Obviously, we know he comes back in 2010, but you know, this guy is the most successful person in f1 history i think he wants to go out on top 
Yeah, I think you're right. Um, also, I'll raise the point again. This is purely speculative, but I mean, how? I mean, people have always kind of sort of said Michael was slightly forced out. Um, Ferrari wanted Raikkonen, and they couldn't feel like they couldn't get rid of Massa. Um, so I suspect there was probably a little bit of a, well, what we get, what we're gonna do about it kind of thing. And Michael's kind of almost gone. All right, well, I was thinking about it anyway, so I might as well go now. But then the the announcement came after winning at Monza. Um, still, because of the announcement itself, makes that one of the most emotional wins in 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 his entire career, if not, you know, maybe the most emotional. I remember being a, a you know a teenager and spending most of 2006 knowing his contracts up thinking is this it is this the last time we're going to get to see michael schumacher you know race anymore it'd been such a big part of my life for like nearly 10 years and yeah then he actually does the you know gives the announcement it broke my heart like it just (laughs) was hard as a not a good memory not a good memory that press conference and it still makes me sad even now because whilst there's obviously the sense of being proud about it and that you know the man who completely personified Formula One for over a decade and maybe longer than that, um, he wasn't going to be around anymore. Formula One, it was like Michael Jordan retiring in the NBA and and like obviously the recently tragically passed away uh, Kobe Bryant in the NBA. Like you know, these are the true titans of their sport. Going out, that sport will be forever changed, and that's how Michael's retirement felt to me and to I suspect many people, millions of people around the world, but. He, he no doubt wanted to go out knowing that he could still do it. But, God, I wish he'd stayed on. 2007 would have been epic. It would have been. It would have been. And it, I, yeah, I, I just think yeah, you're right with Michael Schumacher in, in terms of it. It is that sad. But it, I think it's that realisation, even if you weren't a Michael Schumacher fan, you know, you've seen a once-in-a-generation talent and... You, it's like a good TV show. You never quite mm. want it want it to end. Yeah, and I think we'll all feel. I think anyone who isn't a Lewis Hamilton fan, I'm not his biggest fan. I admire him hugely as a racing driver, but I wouldn't say I'm a Hamilton fan. But the day he announces his retirement, I will be sad because I mm. love great drivers who are just good at what they do, and to know that we aren't going to get to see this person do it anymore we'll be sad and when hamilton does announce his retirement at some point yeah i think like me like millions around the world in a similar way that they were when michael announced his retirement will you know be sad about it where we will be seeing a once in a generation talent hang it up and and call it a day and that's sad no matter what sport you follow i think absolutely because you know uh, as much as you hope that there's talent to come and, uh, you know, there, there is always a way and, you know, you've got a 70-year history of Formula 1 to prove that, you know, top talents and top drivers keep keep coming through. You know, after Louder, I imagine no one thought that someone like Senna would come along, even with kind of Prost coming. Mm. You know, I don't think they'd imagine getting Prost and Senna together and not teammates together as well. Yeah, yeah. So, mm. it, you know, it, sport is a wonderful thing. But what I think, I think a lot of F1 fans will be devastatingly sad, but at least the next generation has come through in terms of the Verstappen and Leclerc. And you never know what's quite going to happen. 
but it certainly looks like the it, the sport's in safe hands. But yeah. with Michael, it, it's sad that it ended the way that it did. If he had yeah. lost to Fernando fair and square, then I think it would have been more acceptable. And this is coming from a guy who's a fan of Fernando. I'd, and, you know, I, I completely was with Fernando, you know, celebrating. He, he secured a second world champion in terms of that. But the way you do it and the way that Michael would come back that season with the engine failure, the first engine failure, I believe, since uh, Germany 2002. 2001. Oh, sorry, 2001, yeah. Germany was... 2001. It was the first time he had had a mechanical failure in a race for five Yes, and it happens in Japan. He's leading the race, and he's on his way to to at least the title decider in and in the advantageous position. Uh, uh, I remember watching, like waking up for that race. Goes to an ad break, comes back, and they're showing the replay of Michael's car blowing up. And I remember, like, honest to God, watching this, not knowing that something had happened. Obviously, because they didn't really have like you know the the technology we have today. But I had this gut feeling some is some i think something bad's happened i just had it in my gut and then yeah literally the first thing you see is michael schumacher's car has failed for the first time in half a decade oh devastating devastating if if it has been beaten right in a straight fight it's a different situation but oh to lose it from not his own fault is just yeah it's and that's probably one of the reasons why michael wanted to come back because he didn't it he truly didn't get what he felt was a fair crack at it obviously it'll turn out pretty horribly in the end but yeah but at least we got that epic final race in brazil where he he didn't win it he didn't win the race but he showed everybody hey you know what i'm still the man like it doesn't matter that i'm no longer here i'm the man you got a long way to go to be as good as me but yeah and like a decade at ferrari Five world championships for himself in that time. Six constructors world championships for the team in that time. And that would really kind of, you know, sit well for the team. They would have loved the individual success, but they also would love the kind of constructor success as well. You know, bringing the Ferrari team up and everything that that team achieved and although it didn't have the fairy tale end, the perfect end, it, Michael's stint at Ferrari is what puts him in the history books. And one hundred percent, yeah, it's it what defines him, and it what for me. Whenever I hear Ferrari, I think Schumacher, and they've yeah. had some amazing drivers drive for them, but I always think Schumacher when I hear Ferrari. And that's what happens to our generation who grew up with it. That's what happens for a lot of people who watched Formula One during that period. His name is forever associated with it. You know, his son, Mick Schumacher now, it's yet to see what he will be like as a driver, what his talent actually is and the heights that his career can reach or not reach. But his name is linked to Ferrari because his dad and what his dad achieved and i think you know that's 
always incredible when a driver can do that with a team. Absolutely. Yeah. And it'll be the same with Hamilton. You think Hamilton, mm. you think Mercedes. You think Mercedes, you think Hamilton. And it's the same thing. But 2006, although it kind of been the end of the Ferrari cap, wasn't actually the the end of Schumacher in Formula One like we thought it was. He, um, after obviously Felipe Massa's horrible crash, um, he, he came back and uh, helped the team out. And, well, he was looking to actually secure the seat, wasn't he? But um, he, he wasn't. He got advised by doctors. I think it was his back, uh, wasn't it? That hey, It was his neck. Neck. It was his neck. Uh, it had a motorcycle accident. Because Michael was a proper adrenaline drunkie. He became like even more so in his in his spare time. Obviously, he had no racing obligations anymore. Um, so he was doing all sorts of like, like skydiving and all sorts. And he did lots of motorcycle racing. And he crashed them way too frequently. He should never have ever have gone on those things. And yeah, he did his neck in. Essentially, he broke his neck, I think. Maybe not quite to that extreme. But he definitely hurt himself quite badly. So that's what prevented the comeback to replace Massa. So at the end of the day, the 2009 Ferrari was a horrible car. So uh, good thing he did in the end probably not, you know, take that seat. But uh, yeah, I, I was just going to say, I remember being really upset that his the comeback didn't come on. But I do remember thinking at the time that this probably gave Michael a, that sort of like reignition of interest in F1. And that apparently is exactly what happened like that, the, the you know, him not being able to get in the car physically because of his neck is what spurred him on to recover and and then yeah as you're about to start talking about make the comeback absolutely you know after the fairy tale season in that 09 season his uh old friend ross braun um gave him a call mercedes had bought <laughs> out braun they were starting this new venture and he was asking Michael, do you want to help us on this venture? And after, you know, I, I imagine Ross had probably spoken to Michael at the time around about that Ferrari, would he, wouldn't he come back? And then, then you know, he, he's got that phone call and, yeah, I, like you said, an adrenaline junkie. And I think, like we said at the end of 2006 and the, the way that it ended hmm. almost kind of feels well you know f1 drivers and especially the ones i imagine who've been at the top are always hungry for more they always want that winning feeling and he was hoping that it might turn out that way with mercedes i mean michael had no reason to think that anything other than we're at least going to be competitive um because you know braun had come in had the ultimate fairy tale season and then with the injection of full-on Mercedes backing, their return to Formula 1 for the first time since 1955, they were all in on it. Like, they they weren't just supplying engines anymore. They, they This was it. They were all in on this. Um, and they went and got the biggest free agent, if you will, you could possibly imagine at the time. Especially, I mean, they obviously, they love the fact they had a German team based in England, but neither here nor there, but a German team um, with two German drivers in them. And you had two drivers at very, very varying points of their lives and careers. But I just remember, I will never forget, you know, just doing whatever 
on the it was I think it was literally a couple of days before Christmas in 2009 and just getting the the news that yeah turn the news on like literally people who I hadn't spoken to for for ages were literally texting me you know or whatever it was at the time texting or facebooking or whatever saying you've got to turn the news on turn it on now and yeah michael schumacher returns it was like not to sound cringe but it was like a christmas gift it was like this is just i can't even i can't believe it especially at a time where you know the team he was joining had just won both the drivers in the constructors championship you think oh my god he actually might be the michael schumacher maybe not as naturally as quick because time does that to the body and all that but he's back and he's back in such a great scenario but as it turned out over the course of the three seasons it 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 didn't really go the way that michael would have wanted but i think what michael achieved with mercedes is now it's more important than just the results he achieved it, it started such a such a like you know period of time of dominance for for mercedes that michael will lay in the foundations for that is as important as him, you know, scoring points in a podium in a pole position. You know, it's it's more more important than that. Absolutely, and I, I think you know, obviously, we'll we'll finally round off uh, when we get to it. The podcast of talking about what we this is, of course, you know, an F one legacy and what we both think Michael's legacy on Formula One is, and. Uh, I think, you know, the F1 fans within us uh, are disappointed that the Mercedes at that stage never quite was successful. But you're right, it laid the foundation for the most successful team in Formula 1 history. And, uh, you know, the having Michael there and, look, uh, he was, where Ferrari, he was the driving force. At Mercedes, he was but a cog in uh, a mm-hmm. machine, but he he was an important cog, along with Ross Braun and you know Toto always references the impact that Michael had on the foundations of that team. And I think that F1 TV documentary about Michael Schumacher, they mm. they talk about you know how he was driving to kind of get money and get the support in. Although Mercedes had gone all in, they hadn't quite financially compared to their competitors and you know to the likes of where red bull would obviously built this dominating car and his probably you know one of michael schumacher's great foes was not actually one on track but was actually the um, uh, designer of adrian newey uh, was one of michael's greatest foes probably in formula one because he was always building cars to kind of um beat him but yeah, it was it was sad it didn't work out. But it from the last decade, and I I did this uh, video with Jazza a while ago, and it it's one of my moments of the last decade was his pole position at Monaco in twenty twelve. I mean, pole positions on street circuits always stand out for me because the margin mm. for error is just though, especially Monaco. A pole position at Monaco is electrifying for me. And mm-hmm. I know, obviously, a bit like the, um, uh, what was it, the 2000 pole we spoke about at the st- start of this podcast. Well, that seems a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we've had a fantastic chat in between them. But, you, you know, it, 
you know, he would go on to start fifth, I believe. Was it a engine? Sixth. So, Sixth. so he he got a fireplace grid pen um, for colliding with Bruno Senna in Spain. He gets pole and then starts sixth. And, yeah, he, his pole lap at Monaco is spectacular. Um, not going to... Not gonna lie to you, I cried. Uh, I cried. I was so happy um, just to see, even if it's not gonna stand, and even if it won't count towards his overall total of poles, sixty-eight in total should have been sixty-nine, but whatever. Um, this was Michael Schumacher that I grew to admire hugely. He was such a fan through everything, thick and thin, and it was almost like. I kind of thought it was the last time we might ever see Michael be the Michael Schumacher of 10, 15, 20 years prior. He was on that day. That lap is epic. I I remember him going through the swimming pool section. He's one handed. He's changing the brake bias as he's going through the swimming pool section. He's doing that one handed. And I remember thinking that is just a man who is still at 43 at the, you know, he could still go. He could still go. He showed signs of it over the three years. I mean, not to gloss over the comeback completely. I mean, he, he came, he was running as high as second in Canada, for example. Um, you know, he did come, he came ninth in 2010 in the standings, eighth in 2011, um, much lower down in 2012, like 13th, 14th, 15th, something like that. But um, Michael still, across the three years, showed the signs of the Michael Schumacher that was of old. But Monaco is undoubtedly the highlight of three seasons, which, you know, people say, did it damage his legacy? Nah. I don't think so. You look at look. I think it's all it's it's the bigger picture here. He he laid like I said earlier, and you said he laid the foundations for what would end up becoming the probably the greatest team we've ever seen in this current Mercedes team. So that cannot be understated. So, but yeah, I, that pole I, lap I is, think is special. I think for me as well that pole lap. I, I think enhances his reputation because Agreed. it showed uh, for a lot of people for a lot of new fans coming into the sport you know who maybe came into f1 a little bit later or you know were young growing up mm-hmm. um they, they they would have heard about this michael schumacher but they wouldn't have lived through it and they wouldn't have gone and they would have seen that pole lap and they would have seen the people's reaction to it and they would have gone mm. wow this this Michael Schumacher's, you know, actually good, and I imagine it maybe inspired a lot of people to go back and look at his career. and And for me, it was it was a beautiful last hurrah. I, I know Senna is the king of Monaco. Uh, the only thing that would be more poetic is if it had been at somewhere like Spa, um, you know, as a kind of full circle uh, from nineteen ninety one to you know twenty twelve. It it would have been. That's the only one, but. Then again, Monaco, to go out at Monaco, the one that all the drivers want to be quickest there, that's something special. So it it was at a beautiful 43. last hurrah. At 43, exactly. Unbelievable. Yeah, special. And like I said, fans like me and, and, and Jumi fans who had been through 
the, all the great times were then, you know, in 2010 through to 2012, going through the not so great times with, you know, the comeback and all that, to get that moment of, it, you know, screw it. I, it was worth it. <laughs> it was worth it. That All mm. that was worth it to just see Michael get the pole in the way he did in what was, I mean, just off the top of my head, at least the fourth, fifth best car to do it around Monaco. Isn't that isn't just about the car? That's the man in the car. That's the driver, and Michael on the day, way older than most drivers on the grid at that point. Yeah, he still showed, still got it, guys. Still got it. Absolutely, and well, the sad thing was that he announced his retirement in 2012, and the main reason behind that he could have kept going for a, a year or two more, and if he kept on going for a couple of years, we all know what the Mercedes did in 2014 but it was to spend more time with his family and um unfortunately you know uh yeah he, he had mm. in less than a year he had that skiing accident that since since then none of us have seen michael schumacher publicly since then i alluded to it earlier in the podcast and um and i'll mention it in my legacy uh what I thought mm. of him, but yeah. I, I feel it's something. Uh, the main, the main, most important thing is I. Well, I don't know what his state is, and we never truly will know. I believe that, and but I hope he's in some form for his family to still appreciate Michael. But it's you know that's the first and foremost that you know Mick and uh, his daughter obviously you know uh, had such a life changing for their dad who I imagine was such a proud I remember at the end of 2006 uh, he was talking about Mick getting his swimming award and you know that mm. feeling amazing about that but yeah, it, it, it's family how it's affected his family but also you know F1 we've we've had great champions come back and come through and be a part of the paddock and we, we've lost that you know Nicky Lauda's influence on Mercedes you very much feel like Schumacher would have been an influence at someone. Maybe he would have gone and, as an advisor to Ferrari and taken Seb under his wing because him and Seb had such a close relationship as well. Um, but we'll we'll round this off, and it was an F1 legacy. And what was Michael Schumacher's F1? What is Michael Schumacher's F1 legacy to you, Rob? So I'm going to talk about it from him from an F1 perspective or overall, and then I'll talk about it from a personal perspective from me. Um, so from F1, Michael Schumacher um, was the personification of excellence uh, in a Formula One car. He just could do things in an F1 car that no one of his era could. Um, Spain 96 is a prime example of that, where he could just take much inferior machinery and just be so much better than everybody else um he you know always he was never he was never satisfied with how things were that's why he put in so much time with his mechanics he put in um so much time uh, on the test track he put so much time in like his own physical preparations for races he changed the game in terms of um fitness in formula one you know this is a he, he debuted at a time where drivers were basically passing out after every race 
Michael will get out of the car without a bead of sweat on him because he just changed the game. So in that way, he was innovative. He, he changed people's mindsets about Grand Prix drivers, that they weren't just drivers. They had to be athletes. And Michael Schumacher was very much, uh, you know, the first driver really of, of or in maybe in ever to truly be an outright physical specimen as well as a fantastic racing driver. Um, he was the face of the sport for his entire career. You think Formula One, you fought Michael Schumacher. Um, his story is that of someone who, like I said, never was satisfied with how things were. He went to he went from Benetton to Ferrari. So to build that team up, to take on that new challenge and look at what happened. He reaped the rewards both in terms of success and financial. Um, he is, in terms of talent, one of the greatest racing drivers not just in formula one history but in f1 history um of course he overstepped the line multiple times in his career um i do think that all the great drivers will have moments in their career where perhaps you question why they did that and and that goes for i think everybody who's ever been somebody in formula one um you don't have to like it it's a part of who he was he was just so driven to win um at all costs for good and for bad and but that ended up leading to him becoming the most successful driver ever um whilst his records i think are going to go over time records are meant to be broken in the same way that michael beat fanjo's championship record prost's win record senna's pole record you know these records are meant to be beaten and i don't doubt michael's records will be beaten at some point in time but I don't think Michael would have it any other way. Um, hence why I think his time at Mercedes is more sort of a laying the foundations more than just his outright success on his own. Um, again, the bigger picture here. So I think in terms of his F1 career, his legacy is just someone who was so supremely talented, who, you know, had such a desire to win. And someone who... When you talk about the all-time greats on sort of like a Mount Rushmore of, of Formula One, he's on it. He has to be. From a personal perspective, um, I know I've mentioned how I don't like the, the more sort of dodgy stuff he's done. Um, whilst I, I don't ignore those things and I, I've accepted that this is just a part of Michael's legacy, the reason why Michael Schumacher means so much to me is just because, um, not to get too deep, but there was a time in my life where I was getting quite badly bullied at school and honestly truth be truth hand on heart um the only thing i really had positive at the time was formula one and michael schumacher's dominance and i knew no matter how bad the week had been that the weekend he was going to win so from a personal perspective uh michael's career means a lot to me and one of the reasons why is because in a way his success got me through a really bleak period um and, you know, his story was something I was fascinated by as a kid. I didn't know who he was when I started watching, but I was naturally gravitated towards him. There was just something, like I said it earlier when I said about how I, when I met him, he, there was something special about just being in his presence. There was something special about Michael Schumacher. And I understood that at a young age and I was captivated by him and just wanted to see him do well. And that ended up becoming, uh, um, you know, him becoming my hero and still is and I he always will be um so for me everything I've just said to me at least is Michael Schumacher's legacy
I think that is a beautiful way of uh, summing it up, Rob. And uh, yeah, I love the kind of distinction between sporting and personal. And, you know, I, I think it's the ability that sporting heroes have to have a greater impact than the means of the sports that they're constrained within. For me, Michael, he, out of modern F1, I often say that I split them because I feel like they're different sports from where they went. But for modern F1, he he has been the best that ever was. And the way that I define it between him and Lewis, where I feel Lewis has driven the battle in recent years very close, is for me, and as always, you know, the the matter of the greatest ever is always an opinion. But for me, Michael Schumacher, what he did at Ferrari, Lewis Hamilton is a major, a massive cog in the smooth running machine of Mercedes. For me, Michael Schumacher built the machine at Ferrari. And that is my clear distinction between the two. From a stumbling giant Ferrari hadn't got it right for so long, that constructors since 1983, that, you know, world drivers' world title since 1979, he did it. They'd had some brilliant drivers since then, but he was the one who took it and not only took it in one title, they went on to dominate and be the most dominating team at that stage that had ever graced the sport of Formula One. And for me, also off the track, yes, you may, just his exuberance, his love, his passion for the sport, it it was beautiful to watch and not appreciating it fully at the time from being young, but now as a massive fan of the sport and just obsessed and enthralled in it, to see someone with such pure joy for the sport that I love uh, it's always amazing to see his podium celebrations, the way that he opened himself up emotionally, the way that I just think of Michael Schumacher as a beautiful human being. And that's not like, you know, in looks, although some people may be drawn to it in that way. But I know a few people that definitely think he's a handsome man. Ex- yeah. Exactly. But I, I mean, as in, as a soul, he's kind of, his family was at the core of what he did. He was such a family man that that 2006 interview, you know, he, he just dominated the sport. He's had this in, huge legacy. And what he's thinking about is his son winning a hmm. swimming award and the amount of joy that you saw on his face when talking about his son there. And the, you know, the fact that he took all the time to be at the factory with the mechanics, learning their birthdays, not just because he had to, because he wanted to playing the kind of football games Mm. with the mechanics and you know just he almost had that cheeky chappy smile the the infectious stories you know of dc that we spoke about it in part one of this you know of having that arrogance of i'm never wrong but you know it was almost in a little bit of tongue-in-cheek he he knows that everyone's wrong at some times but i also love the fact that he's a flawed hero He isn't perfection. Mm. He isn't, you know, this isn't a glistening clean record. 
his mistakes he's learned he's he's exposed his mistakes to the world but he's still gone on to be as things stand the most successful uh, person to ever grace the sport of f1 and uh, that is that is michael schumacher's legacy for me just he will forever be cemented in the history books of the sport that we love and he's f1 certainly was better for having michael schumacher a part of it and i think if you can say that about someone then that's the biggest compliment you can pay to his legacy above all the performances that he put in and the joy and you know entertainment and you know i had jason on for an f1 worldwide podcast talking about his love of schumacher and obviously you know we've learned over this a podcast of how much Michael meant to you, Rob, and you know the, to transpire the sport like that. I think is something pretty special to do, and is an incredible legacy to have. Very well said. Yeah, you are absolutely on the money with what you just said. Yes, yeah. And that, guys, rounds off what has been. I th- can only describe this as a journey, and. I honestly do hope that you've loved it as much as I've loved having this kind of podcast with Rob. It's even if you're not a Schumacher fan, I think, you know, you just have to admire what he did and going back and taking a look at, you know, the rivalries he's had, the the great highs, the great lows that he's had within the sport and everything and what he means to people. I, it, it's been great. It's been great to do, and you'll have this on obviously YouTube on the channel, but you'll also have it depending on what you kind of want to listen to, whatever you prefer, whether you're visual or just listen, and sharing this because this has been a partnership, Rob. <laughs> it's been a joint yeah. venture in terms of this, and it'll be on your podcast as well. Part one was obviously there, and you know, tomorrow I'll release. You've heard mine and Rob, what we thought of his legacy. I've collated bits from the kind of F1 community of what they thought of Michael. And, you know, it shows that it it was widespread and you'll see in terms of that. And not everything was positive, but I think that's the overalling thing was he was a great driver. And you can never take that away from Michael Schumacher. Um, but Rob, thank you so much for, like I said, coming on this journey with me. Uh, you know what it's been an absolute pleasure um thank you very much for having me on um gonna plug you absolutely if you've not subscribed to f1 fanatics do it now great channel so it was an absolute pleasure to be on it and uh yeah yeah thanks very much Mike. much appreciated no problem at all rob and like i said this this will be uh live on the uh everything racing podcast as well which is uh rob's podcast and obviously like we said in part one has a specially dedicated shumi section which i'm sure we'll have some of the incidents we've gone over in this podcast in just even more detail if if that is possible on this journey but <laughs> it is a great podcast for just f1 fans it is everything racing after all but um you know yeah like i said rob a massive thank you again um but that guys that is that is it for today so um we hope you've enjoyed it but for now uf1 fans keep racing 
And that, ladies and gentlemen, was F1 Legacy's Michael Schumacher. Parts 1 and 2 are in the books. I had an absolutely fantastic time recording this with Mike. Uh, hopefully get to work with him again in the future. So uh, be sure to subscribe to Everything Racing Podcast on all your usual podcast apps. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud. And give the show a rating and a review. Also be sure to follow us on social media. So Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And go and give F1 Fanatics a follow and a subscribe and a like. And whatever the... All the, all the usual stuff uh, on YouTube and Twitter. Uh, it's a fantastic channel pumping out content on the regular basis. So, yeah, go and give them a subscribe and, uh, yeah, give them a follow on Twitter. Thank you for listening. I'm Rob Manifield, and I'll see you around the next corner. <laughs>